Now, for the scripture reading this evening, let's open our Bibles in the book of Ezekiel. And we pick up our story now in chapter 11. If you were here last week, you noticed that we jumped a couple of chapters. As I said, we would. We're not going to preach the entire book. But what happens here is a direct continuation of last time. Actually, we did 8 and 9 last week. Sorry. Ezekiel 11. Uh, This is the word of the Lord for us tonight. Thus says the Lord. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway there were 25 men. And I saw among them Jazaniah the son of Azur and Pelatiah the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in this city, who say, The time is not here to build houses. The city is a cauldron, and we are the meat. Therefore, prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me. And he said to me, Say, Thus says the Lord, So you think, O house of Israel. For I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in the city and have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain, whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the meat, and this city is the cauldron. But you shall be brought out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword, And I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God. And I will bring you out of the midst of it and give you into the hands of foreigners and execute judgments upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but you have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. And it came to pass, while I was prophesying, that Pelatia, the son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell down on my face and cried, cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord, to us this land is given for a possession. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, though I, remove them far from, though I remove them far off among the nations, and though I scatter them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come here, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. 
and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me. And I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. Behold, the miserable relic of a toxic era. Its denizens scurry through it, unaware or or unable to avoid the poison it gives off. You may think I'm speaking of Chernobyl or Fukushima, but I was thinking more of Grand Central Station in New York City. You see, if Grand Central Station were a nuclear power plant, it would have been shut down long ago for exceeding the maximum allowable annual dose of radiation for employees. Interestingly, it's all about its radioactive rocks. Thanks to the granite used in the building of Grand Central Station, you can get a radiation dose whenever you go through it. Radiation, as probably some of you know, it's a part of the natural world, even Bananas emit some radiation, given their potassium. In the case of Grand Central Station, the offender, like I said, is the granite on the walls. Feldspar and potassium, thorium-232, uranium, radium. Those are only a handful of the silent killers waiting for you in the ceilings and the walls. Next time you take a train to or from 42nd Street and Park Avenue in Midtown, Manhattan. Yet, even though everything I said is very true, the amount of radiation you get there is so little that even if you lived inside Grand Central Station, it wouldn't harm you. The moral of the story, of course, is not that Grand Central Station is so dangerous, more than nuclear power plants, but the fact that the nuclear power plants are such a safe place. They're way safer than what you have, might have imagined. And the deeper point then of the story is that we often find safety or danger in unexpected places. Care and harm in this world come from sources to which we might be thoroughly blind, which as you might have expected at this point of my sermon, is related to the main point of our text tonight. 
quote, the most obvious important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about, said one of your prophets. And this is what Ezekiel talks about tonight. As he concludes this four-chapter-long vision that started all the way back in chapter 8, God's prophet, help, God's prophet help us to look behind the veil, veil of reality and understand that things are not always what they appear to be. Because you see, last week, not without some shock, we saw that the judgment and doom upon Jerusalem come from God's hands. Tonight, we will find that hope and deliverance come from an unexpected place, leaving even Ezekiel himself a little bit surprised. So as we conclude, as we conclude the first section of our series that I've been calling the gospel according to Ezekiel, we will see a spiritual catastrophe in this text that will forever change how the people of God see this life and the life to come. In summary, we will see that we are at home wherever we are with God. Again, that's the main point of Ezekiel's message in chapter 11. We are at home wherever we are with God. We'll see that in two points this evening. And the first one is deceivers are doomed. We see that in verses 1 through 13. Deceivers are doomed. Like I said, today we conclude the vision that started all the way back in chapter 8. So quickly, let's remember how we got here. Ezekiel was an Israelite priest sent to exile in Babylon with others of his people. God appeared there to him in Babylon and made him a prophet. Gave him a doom and gloom message for his people. Look, you who are in Babylon, you are just the first fruits of the exile. Because soon the Babylonians will return, ravage the land of Israel, and level Jerusalem to the ground. So Ezekiel's message was a way to answer their why question. Their pride and their idolatry drew God away. And what's even worse, at least for Ezekiel, God tells him that the people will not listen to him because they have a heart problem. They are a stubborn, cold-hearted people. So as Ezekiel began his ministry, doing some very public acts of ministry, some of the elders, the leaders of the people there in exile in Babylon, look to him for answers. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 8. And then God gives him his vision and he tells them what has been happening in Jerusalem while they're in Babylon. They are an idolatrous and corrupt nation to the core, blind to the, God of, to the glory of God. So they must be disciplined. Now we reach chapter 11, and at the beginning of it, Ezekiel is brought to the entrance of the temple. That's where in, in chapter 8, he saw the abomination of some of the leaders of the people back in Jerusalem worshiping the sun instead of worshiping God. So in verse 2, God picks up from there. We see the same 25 men. And he says, he tells Ezekiel that these are the men leading the people astray, devising iniquity and giving wicked counsel. You see, while Ezekiel and other prophets like Jeremiah 
have already been prophesying for a long time now about the impending doom of Israel. These men are speaking and spreading a contrary message. They say it's not for those who are near to build houses. Verse 3. This is probably a reference to the famous Jeremiah 29 passage where that prophet told the exiles to face their reality. Have a seat, for you will be in Babylon for a while. This is not going to go as quick as you wanted. So why don't you just build a house for yourself? One commentator explains what these elders here are saying. It's as if they were saying, those who are far off in the land of exile may, if they please, take the prophet's advice and set about building houses for themselves. That does not concern us. And their rationale is given in this phrase that Jerusalem is a cauldron and they are the meat. Commentators agree that this is probably an idiom that is not unlike our out of the frying pan into the fire. Both are in trouble, but you at least rather be in the frying pan than directly in the fire. They're saying they will not face such a harsh judgment as long as they are in the land. Because if they are in the land, they will have the God of that land on their side. Those who are far off are the ones in trouble. At Grand Central Station, they would be safe from radiation, they're saying. God, of course, outright rejects this rationale since, as one commentator noticed, humbling those with inflated egos has never been a problem for God. Because of the evil propagated by these elders, as we saw in chapter 9, being in Jerusalem does not mean at all protection for anyone. Quite the contrary. You have feared the sword. The sword, he tells them in verse 8, and I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God. Dr. Ian Duguid, commentator, helps us to see a significant reversal that's happening right here in these verses. Because you see, there's a, a concrete uh, fulfillment of what God is saying coming soon. You can read 2 Kings 25 that tells us about Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonian king who led the siege and the conquest of Jerusalem and the massacre that happened there. Yes, that will happen. But Ezekiel's vision here echoes deeper threads of biblical narrative. God is anticipating here for them a reverse exodus. We know that Israel was brought from Egypt to Canaan in the exodus. Now they will be driven out of that land. They were delivered from the Egyptians and many other enemies. Now they will fall at the hands of foreigners. Whereas Joshua led them in the division of the land, the land's borders to each tribe, God repeatedly uses here language of borders to say that he will bring them to those borders to die, to lose their inheritance. He's promising to undo everything he did in the greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament, probably the Exodus. 
This is such a big deal that just by hearing that, one of the elders simply fall dead right in front of Ezekiel as he tells him that. That leads Ezekiel himself to get some despair and he cries out to God, are you just going to kill everyone? Ironically, Ezekiel, the seer, is blind to God's reality. I believe that like the elders, he fell prey to the pride-inducing lie that those who live in the land are the only ones under God's blessing. And this entire situation is also highly ironic, again, given that the person, the guy who built that temple in which they were there worshiping the sun, King Solomon, he understood quite well that that temple could never contain God or tie him down to the land as if he was a mere local deity. In 1 Kings 8, Solomon prays, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. He knew, Solomon knew quite well, that God was the one who took initiative. And he chose on his side, on his part, to dwell among the people. They were not tying him down. He was not tied to that land. But the elders did not see that. Even Ezekiel in his cry seemed to not see that. So the question for us then is, do you? Are you being guided in this world by what meets the eye? Perhaps some of you here feel attracted to the idea that has been called Christian nationalism and its assumption that this country, this country right here is inherently Christian and therefore God has blessed it because of the foundations laid here. Some people kind of expect that they have tied God down to the borders of this country. So as long as we maintain our national historical values and traditions, God will bless and protect it. Perhaps, however, you don't even care about any of these things. Yet, so much of us often still assume that things are as they seem, that we can easily recognize God's favor and know where God is acting and try to reproduce it so he keeps blessing us. Some of us may take pride in established traditions, thinking that tradition itself, just not changing things, it's in itself pleasing to God. Let me tell you, I know I do that. The extent to which we look back in time can vary, whether it's all the way to the early church, or maybe the Reformation, or maybe the Puritans. To most of us, it's just merely sticking to what we are used to. This is the way we always done stuff. And that gets our pride going. So whatever gets your pride going, the message of Ezekiel 11 to you is very clear tonight. 
As I said earlier, deceivers are doomed. Each of us must investigate further how the greatest deceivers we often follow, our hearts, are leading us into pride. That's the call of this first section for you. Because in Ezekiel, Ezekiel's day was their territorial self-deception that resulted in devastation and destruction. The question for us is, are we likewise doomed because of our pride? That's what we see in our final point. God delivers the destitute. We see that in verses 14 to 25. God delivers the destitute. Back in chapter 9, when Ezekiel cried out to God over his judgment upon Jerusalem, a very similar cry to what we saw here, God's answer was short, simple, direct. I will not have mercy. Now this last section, after he made the similar cry, Ezekiel, the section opens with God answering the same cry with surprising grace to us if we're reading the text in sequence. Because he tells Ezekiel, you see the people around you, your brothers and sisters in exile, living by the Kebar Canal in Babylon, the ones that people back in Jerusalem say they have no right to God's blessing because they are far away from that land, those people are the true house of Israel. It is through them that I'll keep my promises that I made to you. Even while far from the temple, they are not far from God's presence and care. Hasn't his glory appeared to them there already in Babylon? We saw that in chapter 1. In verse 16, God states it plainly, I have been their sanctuary. They are at home wherever they are, for I am with them. However, he continues, and there's a lot of judgment still in this chapter, there is not much hope for those who remain in Jerusalem. God will bring their abominations upon their heads, as he says. And because of that, something entirely unexpected and surprising happens at the end of this chapter. The glory of God leaves his temple. Some 400 years after Solomon built it, and the whole people saw the glory of God filling that temple. We read in verses 22 and 23 that the same glory moves away and sits on the nearby mountain east of Jerusalem. As if waiting to see the judgment on the rebellious city completed, says one commentator. God just sits there. He leaves his holy mountain, as they have called it. And it is at this low point that the vision ends. Ezekiel is brought back in spirit to his house, to probably puzzled faces of elders sitting in his living room. He tells them what happened. And perhaps they ask him the same question that he asked God. Is this the end 
for the remnant of Israel? Is this where the line ends for us? Well, yes and no. Yes, those left behind in Jerusalem are just waiting for the axe to fall. That has been very clear from the beginning of this book. But yet, no. God promises to preserve a remnant among those far from the land. He promises them a new exodus. And you see, if we're looking at Israel's pride in the land and the temple as one of the sources of their pride that brought them to exile, what could be more humbling and pride-breaking than realizing that God is not tied to any borders or any walls. To realize, as someone once said, that the kingdom of God is bigger than Philadelphia. In Exodus 6, he promised his people in Egypt, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And then in Ezekiel eleven twenty. He tells his people now in Babylon, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But after all we have seen so far in this book, and even today, as this happens before 25 guys worshiping the sun, you may, you may be led to wonder why. Why did the exiles do to deserve such grace and favor from God. Well, God will change them because they definitely do not deserve and there's nothing they can do to deserve it. We'll see in the end of chapter 11, he'll give his destitute people a new heart, a new spirit. He will make them willing and able to observe God's decrees and laws. But it is the case often in Ezekiel, even great news are kind of not so great sometimes. Because as great as this all seemed to be, we know from reading the rest of the Old Testament that the second exodus that will happen at the end of exile will not be as great as the first. It is enough to remember the elderly crying over how pathetic the new temple that they will rebuild, rebuild in a couple of years is. You see in those books written around the, that era of the, the return of the exile, Nehemiah, Ezra, even Esther, as we saw recently, as someone noted, quote, there is a pervasive feeling of incompleteness, a sense that something is more, something more, is to come. And then we keep looking for those things and we flip those blank pages between the Old Testament and the New Testament, get to the Gospels to see if we find something that will fulfill those big promises of a new exodus. So now with Ezekiel 11 in mind after reading it and understanding some of it, you gain a new appreciation for John 1, for example, when we read and the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. 
glory as, the only, as of the only Son of the Father. You see what the gospel tells us is that in the fullness of time, God's presence came again to his people to be with them. The same glory that left the temple came back from an unexpected source. A destitute son of a carpenter from a backwater region in Israel. So to the surprise of many, if you have been reading the Old Testament in sequence, God's presence is now no longer tied to a mountain, to a tent, or to a building. But now it is tied to a person, flesh and bones, Jesus Christ, the Son of Adam, and the Son of God. And then after Ezekiel 11, again, with Ezekiel 11 in mind, you gain appreciation for another passage in the Gospels, Matthew 23, 23, when Jesus laments Jerusalem's historic refusal to hear God's prophets, I wonder if he was thinking precisely of Ezekiel. He predicts the destruction of that temple that they had rebuilt. And then it's not a coincidence that right after saying that, in the beginning of chapter 24, Jesus leaves Jerusalem and sits at a nearby mountain. In the words again of Dr. Duguid, once again, the glory has departed from Jerusalem, leaving behind a magnificent but doomed structure. And of course, if you keep reading the Gospels, you read that he was eventually removed to another nearby mountain outside of Jerusalem when he was taken to the cross. And with Ezekiel 11 at the back of your head, you will think that the wonderful stones of the temple, as they say in Mark 13, were left unscathed, while the glory of God that dwelt among men was beaten to a pulp and bled to death. And even his father forsook him as he endured the wrath that was due to our pride, idolatry, and stubbornness. Yet, in most unexpected fashion, another exodus happen, happens. The greatest of all exodus, the incarnate glory of God returns from the dead on the third day together with the first rays of light on that blessed Sunday morning. The glory of God returns you see, Christian, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, our hope is not the stones of an empty temple. Tonight, Ezekiel points us to safety and deliverance, not in a place or in a land, but in a person. In Jesus, we can find what no building or piece of land can ever offer. It's this 
This is how God's promise to deliver his destitute people is applied to you and me. Because if it, in Ezekiel 1 we said that our lives are like exile, our lives right now is if, is it, it is as if we're living in exile. In Ezekiel 11, we are reminded that we are back home wherever his church is because that's where God is. But notice with a twist. Notice how, for example, in 2 Corinthians, Paul applies these same promises of Ezekiel 11 to the people of God gathered. And he says, For we, we are the temple of the living God. And then look at what he quotes to justify his assertion that whatever the people of God is, that's where God is. He says, As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Have you heard these words before? Friends, wherever we go, wherever we come from, we are home when we gather with God's people those who are chosen and accepted by him, by him through Jesus. Are you here today feeling lost, destitute, unsafe and unsure or on where to look for safety and refuge? Let me tell you, you came to the right place tonight. And again, it's all about the radio, radioactive stones. Our deliverance from sin and acceptance into God's people comes about when He changes the simply radioactive stone that we were born with for a heart. And with this spiritual heart transplant, with His Spirit living in us and making home at us, we are safe and sound wherever we are because we are safe and sound wherever He is until He calls us home for one last exodus to be with Him forever. Do you see this, daughters and sons of men? Let us pray. Almighty God, as we have entirely perished in our father Adam, and no part of us remains uncorrupted, and as we bear in both body and soul grounds for wrath, condemnation, and death, grant that reborn in your spirit, we may increasingly set aside our own will and spirit. And so submit ourselves to you that your spirit may truly reign within us. Grant that we not be ungrateful to you, but appreciating how invaluable this blessing is, we may dedicate and direct our entire life to glorifying you in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray, and together we say, Amen.